0: Hi, my name is Oliva Neal, coach of the Flyers. Hey, I'm Travis Konechny. Hi, I'm Paul Holmgren. Hi, I'm Matt Nesknecht. Hi, I'm Joel Faraby. Hi, Hi, this is Bob Clark. You're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... And you're listening to... you're listening to... Uh, listening to snow the Gold. Snow the Goalie. Snow the Goalie. Snow the Goalie. Snow the Goalie. Snow
1: the Goalie. Oh, yes! Ladies and gentlemen, it is a special show tonight. Here on Snow the Goalie Radio on 610 ESPN Philadelphia, the only Flyers radio show. And I'm joined by the only Philadelphia Flyers analyst that you can find over on NBC Sports Philadelphia. Of course, I'm kidding. But Colby Cohen is in studio today as uh, our dear friend Anthony Sanfilippo is still down for the count after his uh, his bout with pneumonia. Ryan Lennox on the other side of the glass, fist pumping, excited as ever. Colby, thanks for uh, coming into the studio today.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you guys... Uh- having me on and uh, anytime we can talk a little bit of Flyers hockey when we got a couple of days in between games to keep everybody nice and engaged about what's going on in the NHL and what's going on with the Flyers. So,
1: so I want to get into this uh, a few different ways so of course uh, if you're listening out there and you want to give us a call 888-728-9941 again that's 888-728-9941 I think like one of the things we like to do on this show is kind of pull back the curtain and we like to try to get a, a feel for the person behind the mic or usually on on the ice. So I want to get started with a little bit about you. Uh, and then as we go through this, we'll get into the team and and all that exciting stuff. So local guy.
0: That's right. Yeah. I grew up not far from where we're doing the show right now uh, in Villanova. So I'm, uh, I'm a local. I grew up watching the Flyers, living and breathing Flyers hockey. And, um, you know, I think... One of the adjustments that has obviously been for me and for the fans and everyone is, you know, I I, <clears throat> I left Philly at such a young age to pursue my dream of being a hockey player, and you know, I ended up in the Boston area and the Boston market for for quite some time. How unfortunate! Um, between college and then pro, and and you know, that was sort of the organization I was most comfortable with. I started working at New England Sports Network and. Um, you know, that, that was an area that sort of felt like home. And, and when I came back to Philly, um, being fortunate enough to, to start working here in Philly and, and working with the Flyers, there was some adjustment period to really learning the organization and, and, uh, understanding the the market. And, and, you know, I know the fans because I was a fan and, and I grew up a, a Flyers fan and all my favorite hockey players as a kid were all Philadelphia Flyers, so it's, it's been a fun journey over the last, I guess, a year and a half or, or more doing the Flyers'
1: work. So let's go through the uh, the curriculum vitae, if we will, right? Uh, I, I want to get into, so you had multiple stints in the AHL, made it to the NHL. There, there's a stint in Finland, correct? I um, want to get into what it was like to play abroad, especially, because so many guys that come on the show, like they, you know, played in the NHL hit the pinnacle, great moment. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, play in the AHL. But we don't usually get to hear from guys who have played abroad and just about how different the game is. So you had a stint in Finland and one in the UK, if I remember correctly.
0: You know, what happened with, with the UK was there was this tournament called the Champions League in Europe. Okay. And it's the same as the soccer, the soccer tournament. And what they do is, is they take teams from every league. Mm. And there was a team in the UK that got admitted to the Champions League. And, the you know, the hockey in the UK... While it has a North American feel, it's 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 pretty equivalent to like the East Coast League, I would say here, which is one level under the American Hockey League. And what they decided to do was they were going to buy a bunch of players who uh, they were going to bring in just for the Champions League. So they brought in about a dozen guys with AHL, primarily some NHL experience to play for the, the team just during these Champions League matches to play against the teams in Sweden, Ru- Russia, everywhere, because that was the only way they were really going to be able to um, stand up with some of those other teams in Europe. And, you know, honestly, none of my uh, opportunities playing in Europe were were great experiences. Um, okay. I never really acclimated it made me realize just how lucky we are to live in the United States and the the customs that you come accustomed to uh, of like what you eat for pregame meal and when you eat pregame meal and what the travel schedule is like and what practices are like i mean i'll never forget the first day i got to finland and there you know usually on every team there's a few high profile price tag import players and I was one of them Um, and Nicholas Hagman who played a long career in the NHL was playing for the team and you know him and I were basically making all the money for the entire team and all the other guys were Finnish guys making you know very very modest amounts of money and the first day we got there they were like all right uh, five miles let's go like everyone's putting their running sneakers on and and I was like Shocked. I mean, five miles on foot. I I don't know if I've run that ever. <laughs> and so I said to the trainers, like, "Look, I have a history of hip surgery. I had groin surgery. So if you want me to run five miles, there won't be any ice practice for me after. So okay. you, you're going to have to choose." They didn't like that, and yeah, it didn't get me off to the best foot there. So they feeling. feel like
1: we're being a a little, little bit, uh, a yeah, little prima donna Absolutely. Like, okay.
0: Absolutely. And the coach was Russian. He spoke no English, none. Uh, only curse words okay. were in English. Everything else was in Russian okay. or Finnish, which is has a similar feel to it. I had a translator, um, probably a good thing. And it was, you know, it wasn't a great experience for me. And what I realized was, yeah, the money's great because they pay you very handsomely to play in some of these leagues. You know, maybe, look, I I did my tour of duty in the American League, a couple hundred games, whatever, maybe 300 or so games. I got called up, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 times throughout those years to Boston, and I was always a healthy scratch. I mean, I probably spent 50 or 60 games in the press box with the Bruins. Um, sometimes I would go on a road trip with them to the West Coast as the extra guy, and I would, you know, I never played. Uh, I think our management and our head coach, you know, they both saw something different where I think our, our general manager liked my game a lot more than our head coach did. And, and, you know, the head coach got to make the lineup. Um, and I respect that. And, and so I think I just realized at that age, after that, that trip to Europe, that it just, you know, look, uh, I gave it a good shot. I, I played a little bit in the NHL. I, I did my time in the American league and, you you know it's probably uh, time to move on and and figure out what was next
1: with my life so so since you brought up the idea of you know making it up and, and getting that call probably a really exciting moment in, in any player's life when when you get called up and and you think that there's a possibility that you could end up just being a healthy scratch what does that fe- like does it still feel like it's a a, a culmination of kind of that that lifelong no. goal no no okay
0: I, I'm not gonna sit here and lie and and paint a rosy picture okay. it, it's no fun I mean look, You want to play, you know, you want to play and it doesn't matter what level you're playing at. You're competitive. Uh, And, and I felt I always wanted to play and I always felt that I could, I had proven that in an earlier call up into the NHL where I was given a lot of opportunity in Colorado. Um, You know, my first couple games in the NHL, I played over 20 minutes, all three games and Joe Sacco had me, you know, playing on the power play and playing with John Michael Lyles two nights, Adam Foote one night. I mean, I played with some pretty good players. Uh, you know, I'm, like, taking pucks off the half wall from Milan Hayduke, and he's passing it back to the point. Like, guys, you grow up watching play hockey. So, you know, I, I, yeah, you always want to play. I mean, I was a part of the Stanley Cup team. I traveled with the team the last month of the season. I never played. I traveled the whole playoffs i practiced every single day um you know we had our black aces but then we had you know the team has eight eight nine guys that are defensemen and and maybe 13 14 forwards in the playoffs practicing every day because you know Chara would take a day off or seidenberg would take a day off and you'd just fill in or you'd kill penalties on special teams day you know you're you're that's that's your role on that team. I mean, you're the eighth or not, you're the eighth defenseman, yep. and, and that's what I was for them. So, you know, I spent two and a half months practicing, getting bag skated, getting biked, throwing up half the time because the bike rides were seriously that intense, and they were so worried about keeping you in shape if there was an issue. You know, that year we played Vancouver in the Stanley Cup finals. By game seven of that series, they were on their tenth defenseman. They actually had a guy who they had to call back from who had been dismissed from American. Their American league team was out. They had to bring him back. He was on vacation because they needed bodies. Like Vancouver was so depleted. Elaine Vigneault was the head coach of that team. Yeah. Um, so we didn't have injuries that year. And I was the eighth guy. And like I said, it was um, it was a phenomenal experience to watch and, and be in practice and be in the meetings every day and see what the film was like. And, seeing how intense the Stanley Cup finals, even the conference finals. I mean, I would say it got really real after we had beaten the Flyers uh, in the second round and we got to the conference finals against Tampa Bay and it got really real at that point where we really felt like we'd win that series. The intensity was like, you can't explain it because every inch of ice was just so important. Um, Even as a healthy scratch, You're sitting there watching these games, the first period from an exercise bike, and then the rest of the game, your hair is standing up on the back of your neck every single play you're out of your seat because it's so intense. And, you know, being in the throes of it every single day, you have to because you have to be ready because it's a long shot you'll play. But if you do play, that could be the only chance you ever get. And So you've got to remain ready. And, um, you know, we go on to win the cup and I got a Stanley Cup ring and I I got a day with the cup. And, you know, I'll be honest, it never really felt right because I didn't play in the playoffs. And as a competitor, you want to play. You want to be on the ice. You want to
1: have an impact on the game. So, you know, it's kind of a weird situation for me. So at the micro level, it's disappointing because you don't get to play. Absolutely. At the macro level, like looking back on it now, you mentioned Zidane Ochara who to me is like one of the more fascinating guys to to play in the league, definitely doesn't play with a regulation stick.
0: What is there? Well, he has a special exemption. Yeah. They have an exemption with the league for his stick and not just the height, the actual like width and girth of the stick because it's so big. Really? Yeah, oh my God. You... I knew the length. I didn't know, okay. Yeah, oh my God. The shaft of his of the stick is, it's like, I mean, his hands are huge. He would swallow a regular stick with his hands. He wouldn't be able to play with it.
1: Was there anything that that you learned from him, or from those guys on that team? Like who who in that locker room stood out? I know that we're a Flyers show, and like we always care about the Flyers, and we'll get to them in a little bit. But I, I'm fascinated by this now because that was a Stanley Cup team, and you know, if nothing else, it's good to to find out about something from For the sure. Stanley Cup team because it's not like we've had one. Well, and we here. had
0: Dennis Seidenberg in the locker room, who's a longtime Philadelphia Flyer, yep. a guy that you know the Flyers brought up through the rankings and developed. And he's one of the most impressive guys I ever played with Dennis Seidenberg. And you know, it was the preparation, and it was the focus, mm-hmm. which was like so jarring and eye opening and and in practice, every single drill and rep and warm up and the film session, everyone was so engaged because you really have to play mistake free hockey. I mean, you obviously that's never going to be a hundred percent mistake free, but, You know, it's we, you have to just be so care, not even careful, it's thorough. I always talk about with the Flyers, one of the biggest differences I've seen between the last two years is the Flyers take care and manage the puck so much different. And teams who win manage the puck. And when I think back to that playoff run, even the games we lost, we always managed the puck well. Guys were never tried to make the extra play if it could potentially hurt the team. You know, Mark Recchi was chipping pucks in and was playing, uh, getting back harder than he's probably, you know. I mean, every guy was so bought in and said, okay, this is my role, Sean Thornton, uh, Greg Campbell, Danny Payet. This is my role, and I am going to do my role at 3,000%. And I'm never going to put myself in front of the team because then when I come back to the bench, I'm going to have to look a guy like Dennis Seidenberg or like Zdeno Chara in the eye, and that's not going to be pretty. I mean, the 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 leadership from the players was what I was just so impressed with, um, and why I believe. I mean, obviously we had good players, we had a good team, but it was just such a a team a room full of leaders that. We're willing to sacrifice
1: to win and that's what happened well it's interesting that you mentioned that and, and especially about the specific roles because yeah like in in the last couple of seasons so I started yeah I started last season um covering the team with Anthony and so it's there there's such a it felt like a paradigm shift in the way that 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 this coaching staff approached the way that they communicate with the players and what was expected of the players like last year it felt like at the end of the Hackstall regime, it it kind of felt like the guys were just kind of lost without a paddle, right? And then Scott Gordon came in, and you know, to, to, I think, give him some credit, I think it was six or seven games into his tenure is the first time they actually got to have a practice, to actually have extended time on ice to implement any kind of system changes, and he was much more forthright, it seemed, with the players about what his expectations were. But at the end of the day, you knew that he was going to be the interim coach, and then he's probably going to go back to Lehigh Valley. There there was a very minimal chance, barring them going on some kind of St. Louis-esque kind of run to the cup, for him to keep that job. It, it seems like, at least talking to players this year, one of the things that not only the, the younger guys, but especially the vets on the team have commented on, is just how different it feels to know what their defined role is for the player individually, and then how they fit within the macro concept uh, of the team. So based on what you said and, and that together, do you think that that's a, a large role of why we're seeing so much more success with this team is just the fact that guys know what to expect and, and, and the coaches know what to expect of the players? Yeah, I think the accountability
0: has changed in the Flyers locker room. And I think guys have taken the leadership roles upon themselves better. I think and this isn't a popular opinion, which I really couldn't care less about, but they brought a guy like Chris Stewart in the first half of the year who holds people accountable in the dressing room. And I know he's in Lehigh Valley right now, and I wouldn't be surprised if once um, we get past the deadline and the cap stuff changes and the roster limits change, you see him back up. He may not play another game, but his presence in the locker room and the accountability in which he imposes on players – you cannot put a price tag on. I've been in the locker room with him as a player, as a young player, and I know what it is like. And I am speaking from complete experience of being in these locker rooms. So, you know, there's a, there's a major level of accountability that Elaine Vigneault has put on these players, and he's done it by sort of picking out the best players. It's like you went to the schoolyard and you picked out the, bu- the biggest bully, and you beat him up, and then everyone went, "Whoa! I'm going to respect this guy. Mm-hmm. He's done it with Voracek. He's done it with Remer, He's done it with Giroux. He's done it with, you know, all the forwards that make all the money on this team. Sure. Um, uh, the the veteran players. I think young players, uh, you know, you have to handle a little bit differently the way you go about um, challenging them. But I think he's realized that. I'm going to challenge my older players to be what they can be. I mean, we have some, you know, this town, Philadelphia, we have some very good players on the Philadelphia Flyers. We really do. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of good players. There's a lot of people who will say, well, we don't really have a superstar here in Philadelphia. And, you know, I would challenge you to look at the, the guys who have the most points over the last 10 years in the NHL before you sit here and say the Flyers have never, you know, they haven't had a superstar in a long time. You know, have we had someone as dazzling and uh, and as noticeable maybe as Ovechkin or Crosby? Of course not. I mean, those guys are freaks. Yeah. But in the next crop of guys, we, the, the Flyers have had those types of players.
1: So let's, I guess, pull this back a little bit more. So I, I don't know, on NBC Sports Philadelphia, where you work, I think there's like a certain kind of topic that you're allowed to cover within a a given time let's let's go a little bit more on the personal side of of this locker room and about some of the guys that that you know talk to the works so when a guy like let's say Jake Voracek Jake is very outspoken great quote to the media you can definitely I mean the guy wears his emotions on his sleeves uh I think we pointed out on an episode a while back there was a piece that Mike Sielski wrote um where he said that you know Jake had been laughing when Elaine Vigno was was talking uh, and brought up his name and and Claude and uh, JVR among others and that he had laughed and that kind of came off as almost like a like a character hit piece and I was on on the camp of I thought it was a very cowardly thing to do if you're not down there all the time and you so that that was its own thing he's brought up Jake's name quite a bit this season and JVR and to some extent I guess G as well with those guys and and knowing them better at, at what point do you think is there a a a moment where a guy like Vigno has a certain amount of clout and that works x amount of times but eventually that whole the the concept of mentioning those guys by name ends up losing some of its its oomph does that happen like w- with these guys with what you know is I, I mean there listen point?
0: it happens in sports that's why Andy Reid left Philadelphia Andy Reid was still a great coach when he left Philadelphia, as we all know. Yeah, um, you know, I know some people will argue that, and there's haters here for Andy Reid. But you know, all coaches' voices get tired in a dressing room. That that happens, and you know, there's a case to be made for the fact that AV has had a lot of success with teams early in his tenure with those teams. Um, yes, I do think that there is a limit. I think uh, as a player, you probably you know, that, that, that wears you down. I mean, I, I was never a top. Yes. I was a high draft choice, but I was never a top player at the professional level I played, but I wasn't one of the best players. I wasn't someone that the coach was going to go call out in the media to try to send a message because that would have been dumb. Mm -hmm. But in college, that wasn't the case. I was one of the top players and I played for Jack Parker, who is a tough coach and who, you know, my, my defensive partner and teammate, Kevin Shattenkirk, who's gone on to have a really great it's NHL career, career um, one of the highest-scoring American defensemen over the last 10 or 12 years, you know, Jack used to send a message by going after him and I, and, and Nick Bonino as well. If if the team wasn't doing well, he came at us. And you're right, it does. Some guys it wears on quicker than others because I remember Shaddy, um, you know, not leaving BU with the best taste in his mouth because he felt like his last year he was the he was the captain as a junior I was an assistant excuse me and Nick Benino was the other assistant and where Nick and I had a a better taste in our mouth after our third year when we all signed and went to play pro he didn't because it just wore him out a little bit more I do think there's been a lot of Distaste and put uh, you know, there's been a lot of picking on James Van Riemsdyk in my opinion. And uh, you know, look, some coaches look at a player and he's not for them. You know, I mean, hockey is so subjective that you and I could watch the same shift and we could see something totally different because it's so fast. And when you have a certain feeling about a player and you go back and you watch the film, you're going to see what is in your mind. I could watch Nick Lidstrom shift and find something wrong, but you think such good positive thoughts when you're watching his shift, you're not going to see anything wrong. You're going to see it all in a positive light. So to answer your question, yeah, you're right. It, It most certainly can wear out a guy some quicker than others, and you know for some reason certain players seem to take the brunt of that
1: just mentioned something very interesting, and I want to get to it on the other side of this I know break. Where
0: you're, I know where you're
1: going with it. <laughs> watching the game is important, and it feels like there has been a trend, especially in the Philadelphia market, oddly enough, where people don't seem to be watching the game as much as they do spend time looking at graphs. Now, that's not to say that there isn't any purpose behind that, but I want to get into that on the other side of the break as we talk about the difference between watching the game and praying at the altar of analytics. So for right now, we'll be back on the other side. Uh, Give us a call if you want, 888-728-9941. Again, that's 888-728-9941. This is Snow the Goalie on 610 ESPN Philadelphia. And we are back here on Snow the Goalie Radio here on 610 ESPN Philadelphia. I want to talk to you really quickly about our friends over at DraftKings Sportsbook. Everybody knows the DraftKings Sportsbook is a trusted leader in daily fantasy, but they brought their expertise to legal sports betting. They're already America's top-rated sportsbook. And with so much going on this week, you're definitely going to want to take advantage of the convenience to bet wherever, whenever with the DraftKings Sportsbook app. They've got awesome daily promos going every day. And, you know, in fact, sometimes... They, they practically give you money for free, if we're being honest. There was a, a prop a few weeks ago where they had Penn State and Indiana combining for 51 points total. Uh, and, and for that to go over, it was an easy $50. They had another one with uh, a Ben Simmons prop a few weeks ago. So, DraftKings Sportsbook, it's almost as if they want to give you money. So you should go sign up for them. Don't forget to use the promo code CROSSINGBROAD when you sign up. They're based right here in the U.S., not offshore, so you know that your funds are safe and secure. If you're already betting in P.A. with another book... Get in on DraftKings Sportsbook. Take advantage of their great sign-up offer. They've got a deposit bonus, uh, deposit match bonus of up to $1,000. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app right now. Use the code CROSSINGBROAD. That's one word when you sign up. For a limited time, all new users can get a free bet just for signing up. Plus, when you make your first bet, you can get a risk-free bet of up to $500. Don't forget to sign up with promo code crossing Broad to place your first bet, and you can get a risk-free bet of up to $500 only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, Pennsylvania only. Restrictions apply. Deposit bonus requires 25-time playthrough. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Of course, successful San Filippo is not in studio tonight, so we'll go to Twitter for him. Follow him at, at San Philly, and we'll make sure that he puts up his successful San Filippo uh, picks for the day. We also want to talk to you about our friends over at Odd Logic Brewing Company, of course, located at 500 Bristol Pike in Bristol, PA. Odd Logic Brewing Company is a great place to go, have a great variety of beer. And then, of course, one of the nice things is they don't punch you in the face with the fact that you can go watch a game. So, you know, maybe you need to low key take somebody out on a date, go meet up with some friends. Some of them might not be a sports fan. You can still go out there. They've got plenty of flat screen TVs all around Odd Logic Brewing Company. They'll have the game on and, uh, you know, most of the time they'll pump that audio through the uh, speakers It's a great place to go. Fantastic variety. Our friend Kevin Kincaid, who's not here tonight, is a a craft beer connoisseur. Enjoyed the beer variety when we were out at Odd Logic Brewing Company for a live show. Of course, this weekend they've got, remember, the Titans on tap. 4.8% cream ale. Bright and crisp with a smooth, thirst-quenching finish. They've got the No Ideas Original. 8.4 8.4 double IPA. Look Within. 6.2% Saison. All puns intended. An American IPA. My favorite, the Hooligan Factory. 6% brown ale. They've got a fantastic variety. Plus, you know, maybe you got a designated driver in your life who's out there. They've got cold brew coffee, nitro, on tap. Always a fantastic option. Plus nice. some handcrafted cocktails from 1675. So Odd So, Autological Brewing Company. Great place to go. 500 Bristol Pike, Bristol PA. Big thank you as always to them. Check them out on Facebook. Let's go to the phones. Colby Cohen is here from uh, NBC Sports Philadelphia. We were just talking about his his career, and uh, we were starting to talk about the Flyers, but we got a call here from uh, Neil. So, Neil, uh, you're on Snow the Goalie Radio. Thanks for giving us a call.
2: All right, good. First of all, Colby, I'm envious that uh, you get to work with Katie Emmer, uh, so I'm very em- envious of you.
1: Um, Listen, Neil, I-, <laughs> I don't know if you noticed or not, but at the uh, the NBC corporate level, uh, Jeremy R- <laughs> there was that little, little thing with Jeremy Roenick. Let's not put... Our good friend Colby. Well, and they, no, uh, listen,
0: Katie has done a wonderful job since she came here to Philadelphia. She adds a ton of hockey knowledge to our show. And, you know, she has she comes from Minnesota where, you know, you're basically born and they give you a pair of hockey skates. So yeah. she has been a great addition to our team, knows the game, is a real student of the game, which I've appreciated it and is constantly asking questions to Bundy, to me, to Al. She goes to every single practice. I mean, she's really immersed herself in Philadelphia Flyers' current and history, which I think is really impressive. I mean, uh, I've been nothing but impressed with the work that she's done since she's been here.
1: I will say that when she comes Um, down, there there are some games that she's down in the locker room and— and there's like a, a, a different kind of level that she brings when she's down in that capacity and
0: she works her butt off. she doesn't miss
1: practice. I mean, seriously,
0: she has come here with a great attitude and she's definitely improved the level of our
2: show.
1: So Neil, I guess you should be envious <laughs> <laughs> Col yeah That's I'm important. very envious. Yeah.
2: but here the question that I have, um, and I know it's a week until the trade deadline, but if I do my math correctly, Tampa has gotten Coleman. Andy Green is going to the Islanders. Zucker's going to Pittsburgh. Now, do you think Chuck Fletcher is waiting to see what's going to happen with Nolan Patrick um, to to determine whether he's going to make a move? I don't want him to wait around for Nolan Patrick. And, you know, you're hearing names like Joe Thornton, Jeff Carter. Um, I don't want Fletcher to sit Pat because – I, I want them to get in, and if you get in, you never know if Carter Hart gets hot. I want them to do something before the deadline, preferably a defenseman and a second- or third-line center. And what about a Brendan Dilling-Joe Thornton package with San Jose? Um, what would it take to get two players like that? So it's it's one question, but it's two-parted. No, I hear you. Is he going to wait on Nolan Patrick?
0: I don't think so. I, I think at this point you're so far away from when Nolan Patrick could realistically play because he still needs to get cleared for contact. Once a guy gets cleared for contact, you need a few weeks of practice just to make sure the contact doesn't set off any of his headache. Then he's going to have to go down to Lehigh Valley and he's going to have to play some conditioning games. And, you know, we don't have that many games left on the, on the NHL schedule. So by the time he's realistically in game shape and ready to play, maybe there's what 15 games left. The last 15 games of an NHL season are the fastest 15 games, the most physical 15 and the most intense 15 of the entire season. So the level of play is going up. It's going to be really challenging to introduce a guy and expect him to have a real impact. Now I'm not saying it can't happen or it won't happen. I find it to be unlikely that he ends up having any sort of impact on the team this year. Uh, I also hope that he's okay long term. If he has something going on with his head, you know, for me, like that's the most important thing because you've got to think about the rest of your life and being able to be a human being before you know playing it this season for the Flyers. So, for for the second part of your question, I would say. First of all, having – Jeff Carter I do not think is coming back yeah, to Philadelphia. Let's, let's, he's, let's kill that one off
1: right now. He's, so there, there was a uh, – after the Kings came into play in Philly, that was a question that uh, uh, was brought up to a few people in the know uh, within the Kings organization um, that Anthony had gone back and forth with. And the, the info that came back was this. Uh, Jeff Carter will not waive his no-movement clause – Uh, Jeff Carter does not want to go anywhere uh, outside of L.A., so much so that he might even threaten retirement to hold that against the Kings, to hold that cap hold against them. That's how much he wants to stay in L.A. Now, that said, his wife was from this area, and so the only way that it happens is if maybe Mrs. Carter decides that, that that it's worth you know, coming home for whatever reason. And and even then, it, it is such a long shot. And by the way, it's not as if at this point Jeff Carter is that decisive, uh, he, he's not that impact sniper that, that you know, he was earlier in his career. It's just not, he's not that guy.
2: Agreed, anymore. but if you slot him as a third-line center behind Katori keep your role the wing, go Couturier Hayes, and if Patrick doesn't come back, your third-line center could be a Jeff Carter, a Joe Thornton. You're, now you're matching up against Tampa, Washington, Pittsburgh that can go two, three deep down the middle. I think that's their biggest need is a – because you keep hearing AV say we're looking at a fourth-line center. I think they need a third-line center, to be honest with
0: you. Well, here's a couple considerations. First of all, the salary cap. And it's not just this year the managers have to make decisions about the salary cap at the trade deadline right now that will impact the team next year. You think about Jeff Carter's salary cap is in like the five or six range. You know, that's something they may not be able to have work on their cap for next year. So, you know, as much as we all want these things and I'm with you, I hope that Chuck goes out and can make a deal or two, but you know, it's a lot harder than it is to make these trades in real life uh, than to do it on the video game. And and Twitter makes it seem very easy to make these trades. Blake Coleman got traded to Tampa last night. He has 21 goals this year. He's 28 or 29 years old. He's always been a solid bottom six. On a good team, he is a bottom six player. On the Flyers, he's on the third line probably. They gave up a first-round pick. They gave up one of their best prospects in Nolan Foote, who will be an NHL player. He's the son of Adam Foote. Uh, former defenseman, obviously Hall of Famer. And, you know, you you start seeing what the price tag for this kind of thing is, and then you think about the cap implications. The Flyers have had cap issues all year. They yep. are very much up against the cap, so they're okay. going to have to move players out if they want to bring other players back in. And, again, you've got to think about next year and the year after. It's not just I, what I, can they I, do right now. And that's now. part of
1: the problem, too, is, yeah, like Carter's cap hits just 5.3. Okay, uh, which for, is manageable. For, for the next and for for two seasons beyond this one as well so that's that's where you start getting yourself into I, you can make the case right now that there's at least one contract albatross on the team depending on on where you sit on the the jvr hype train that's still seven million dollars now he's on a great streak but we know the kind of player the jvr is right like he he's a guy who goes through the highest of highs and the lowest of lows where there are I don't know 10 12 game stretches where from time to time you just kind of wonder at, at what point do, do we start to see the JVR of old we've seen it more recently right where he's a point producer and and he kind of looks like the guy that Ron Hextall thought he was getting when he handed out 35 million dollars in free agency so it, it's an interesting thought I kind of like the idea of a Joe Thornton of uh, just course. just it's you Joe know Thornton it's Joe Thornton. Who like how could, Joe how could you not want it but there is kind of that realism uh, I think that we kind of have to you know also keep in play here. Uh do appreciate the call Neil. Um maybe we'll we'll hear from you again uh next week. Thanks for listening. Um uh, for the record, yeah. If the Flyers could bring in Joe Thornton and Dylan,
0: I'm I'm yes on that all day. I don't think it's realistic that they could do that, but I would be all in for that. I mean, you're adding a defenseman who plays with a ton of sandpaper. He's hard to play against. He makes the safe plays. He's big. He kills penalties. He'll play against other teams good players. And then you add Joe Thornton, who's one of the greats of all time. I mean, of course, I would love to see that here in Philly.
1: I just don't think it's all that realistic. So let's play that. Let's play that game for a second. You're Chuck Fletcher, and it's going to cost you a prospect with good upside. The name that, that seems to bounce around a lot is Isaac Ratcliffe. I wouldn't want to part with him in in that deal necessarily unless there are minimal draft implications. Fair. I don't see how how Chuck ends up making a deal at this deadline. I think because of what you brought up with with the cap, and it's a thing that we've talked about ad nauseum at this point. It's just there is so much money tied up in four or five guys at the at the top of the salary scale here, um, between Giroux, Voracek, Hayes, Van Riemsdijk. There there aren't that many guys that you can clear a cap space out for. The the number one guy is Shane Gossespare, right? <sighs> You know, ghost at four and a half million, if he's going to end up just being a bottom pair defenseman, is an overpay. But then you have to sell a team on his ceiling that he hasn't reached in years. And I guess that's part of the problem. And so this kind of comes back to a thing that we were about to to get into in the first segment, which is watching the game versus seeing what a graph tells you or seeing what uh, a, a beautiful. Picture shows you a nice uh, a heat chart uh, like a heat map, right? Or we're yeah. showing the isolated impact of a defenseman. That shows that Ivan Provorov is a oh, let's let's adjust a little don't bit. He's word, now he's now it. a second pair defenseman who mildly helps the team's power play, despite the fact that he's put up awesome power play numbers this year. The analytics community who want to get into super micro analytics and, and numbers that look, I I worry sometimes that if if you speak ill of analytics in general you're told that you're too stupid to understand it if you point to the most minute number that doesn't necessarily take any of the human element into it then you're 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 in this like weird kind of tug of war and in Philly for whatever reason it just feels like of all the cities in the US to fully embrace analytics and hockey all of a sudden for some reason it ends up being Philadelphia It's this kind of weird thing where it almost feels like it's a generational divide, but then there's somebody like you and there's somebody like me who can look at the analytics and say, like, yeah, there are useful statistics to use as an ancillary support to what I'm seeing on the ice, but you can't live and die specifically by those numbers. So as a player and as somebody who knows current players, current front office members, I'd like to just get your feel and maybe you could tell the people just how big of a role analytics plays in either as a player or from what you know of those who you talk to in the game now.
0: So it's a funny topic and I get, you know, I shake my head at a lot of what we see in the media. And I feel that what advanced stats has done has given a platform to a handful of people who have no idea of what they're actually watching. They have no ability to watch a game and evaluate And they use statistics and numbers to make up for that. So that is what you see. And a lot of that in the media. Uh, That is what I shake my head at the most. I think analytics are a great tool for life, for sport, whatever you're using. Data is helpful. Some teams, like the Arizona Coyotes, very openly live and die by analytics. Their, their general manager is a young guy. He's maybe one or two years older than me. He's like 32 years old, John Shika. He owned an, a stat. It was called Statleets. He started a stats company. He then got the job as the assistant GM in Arizona. He then was promoted to general manager, and he lives and dies by stats. I can tell you 90% of the NHL does not live and die by advanced statistics. They use it as a tool and a very helpful tool. They are all building their departments. Some of them are still figuring out what numbers they like and what they don't like. And I do have a few friends that are high-level management in hockey. And what they have told me is, is that we like analytics as a supplement. It is a piece of the pie and when we're thinking about a trade or we're wondering about players in other areas or maybe one of our guys isn't performing up to what we think or maybe we're in love with a guy and we want to double check, they'll ask, hey, can you run some reports? Can you bring up some of these types of numbers, whatever their numbers that they like, let's say in Detroit or Buffalo, can you show me what that looks like? I do not think... And I can tell you, I know they're not doing it in Philadelphia. They are not making lines based on analytics. They are not going to make a trade based on analytics. They have a scouting department where people use their two eyes and they scout players. And then they write reports and then they have meetings. They're called scouting meetings (laughs) where they sit around and they talk about players. And then they might say, we really like this kid. Let's pull up his numbers and let's see what they say. And sometimes they match, and sometimes they don't, and they take it all into consideration, and then they may draft the kid or they may not. But they will never say, his analytics are bad, we're not taking them. No, no, they sit face-to-face, they meet you as a person, they talk to you, they look you in the eye, they put you on the ice, they put you through a workout. That is all part of the bigger Puzzle and the bigger pizza and analytics has a role, but it is certainly not the only role. So when you see a writer write an article of 2000 words based on analytics only, and he's using percentages and this and that real hockey people shake their head and laugh because it is. Pretty worthless.
1: (laughs) Just gonna let that sink in for a second. <laughs> that might have been one of the best rants that I we, listen we've had. There's a place show.
0: for it, but it is not the key to the castle. And if that's what you're believing by, you're being fed BS, and you're being taken down a rabbit hole in which you will never actually enjoy the sport. And that's what it's supposed to be: entertainment, sports,
1: games. It's supposed to be fun. And, and that, I think, like, the comparison that I make here, and it's it's not a perfect one, admittedly. The way that that the analytics movement has has kind of swept through Twitter is akin to, like, in the NBA, a lot of people talk about players and teams that are out of their market as if they are following them religiously because of, like, NBA league pass. And so you have like the people that that some refer to as like the league pass watchers, where they'll say, "Well, yeah, I really like this guy. I really like Luka Doncic from the Dallas Mavericks, and boy, he's great at X, Y, and Z." And then you say, "Well, how many of the games have you actually watched?" And it's, "Well, you know, I, I catch I catch a quarter here and there, right? You you can't understand the full nuance of a player unless you're watching the games, or unless you're happen to be following people who are who are covering practice and you're getting a more holistic view. So it's like in the same way that you get the way that the the NBA community on Twitter especially watches highlights and then somehow builds their full narrative in their minds about how good a player is or what they're good at based on watching highlights I feel like that's what we're seeing on the hockey side with you know here are the numbers and like the numbers are cool like there's no way around that it to say that hey um Robert Haig looks like a decent third pair defenseman by the eye test, he doesn't have an incredible ceiling, but he's at least a somewhat reliable guy. You can see that. When you watch Shane Goss' bear play, on the other side, uh, you see a guy who oftentimes can be caught with defensive lapses. I think high risk, high reward. High risk, high reward. Is a better way to and put it. And sometimes, as we've seen in previous seasons, that reward ends up paying off. But in a season like last year, for at least half the season, and this year, in between you know, injuries... You haven't seen the reward, so it's just high risk. One guy, the analytics community will say, is a garbage player. The other, they'll say, well, his underlying numbers are really a positive, and this is why you need to put him in the lineup. And to me, I sit back and say, you have to also take the human element in here you know there are guys like you mentioned earlier that that people roll their eyes at Chris Stewart and his and his spot on a team because he doesn't bring any real high upside and, and you you take out the human element of it there are people that when you bring up Robert Hagan the fact that he's actually had a solid year for this team that he's been a very reliable third pair defenseman for this team they say yeah well it doesn't matter that he does that and it doesn't matter that the guys like him in the locker room because they also like Andrew McDonald and somehow that's supposed to be just a a catch-all kind of assessment or or way to put down a player when you watch a guy like hague and you watch a guy like ghost in your opinion what do you think is um the better way for this coaching staff to go at least in the in the short term let's assume that ghost gets back healthy like what are you seeing when you watch those two play it's hard to
0: make an argument against robert hague right now i mean he has played up to his role Every player on the team has a role. It goes back to what we talked about in the first few minutes of this show of you know, what made our team successful in 2011. Everyone knew their role. Not everyone's a scorer. Not everyone's a power play guy. You need a Robert Haig who's going to take a puck up in the shoulder and block three of Ovechkin's one-timers and not think twice about it. A guy who's going to make that safe play for you 15 or 20 times a game where he's just getting the puck out. He's eating, eating some, you know, tough shifts in the corner and moving the puck really safe. And, and, you know, that is his role. And so look, the, the defense pairs right now, the way they've been going, it's hard to think of them breaking them up. Um, It's, it's a good problem to have when you have seven really capable players who, who you want to have in the lineup. I mean, I think at some points, uh, Phil Myers has shown a lot of upside, and there's been a lot of head-scratching moments for him as well. So I I just think that things change day-to-day in the NHL, and players know that. You could be in the doghouse on a Friday and have an OT winner on Wednesday, and the world has changed. And that's why, as a player— the highs and the lows are probably never as good or as bad because it all can change. You know, James Van Riemsdyk is a great example of that. He has found himself in the doghouse many times this year, some of which I don't necessarily agree with. But all of a sudden you score a couple goals and it's crazy how quick the narrative changes. So it's in general what I will tell you, and and I haven't mastered this skill yet either. When you're evaluating hockey, when a scout goes to watch, you know, there's always a lot made of, of this time of year. Uh, Montreal, Arizona, St. Louis, and Chicago have scouts here. We must be in trade talks with these teams. Yep. When these scouts are at the Flyers Arena at Wells Fargo Center, you know, they're not watching the whole game. If I asked one of the Flyers scouts, John Riley or Shell Samuelson, you know, they do player development, they do scouting, you know, w- what's their forecheck like? They're not going to be able to tell you after they scout a game. They're watching two players and that's it. And they're watching them from the time they get on the bench to how do they interact with their coaches to they get off. Do they hustle when they change? Do they finish their check? They're watching everything about that player. They are not even watching the game. They're just watching players because... To watch a hockey game and try to tell me about every shift one player had and whether you're dogging them or whether you're loving them or whatever your analytics say, it's not possible. That's why how many times do you hear an NHL coach say, I got to watch the film? You know, they'll make some general comments, but until they go back and they do, these staffs work hard. They're there on the days off. They stick around after games. Um, you know, I was reading an article today about Boos Brujo, who just got fired from Minnesota and how they were never not at the rink watching film mm-hmm. days off travel days. These coaches, that's all they do is look at the film. They've got video coaches They're... And because it is really hard in real time to have a good sense. This guy was really good tonight or not. It's easy to know a guy scored two goals and had an assist and just to think he was good he might not have been good. Exactly. He might have found himself in the right spot twice and you know, we all celebrate that guy and talk about how good he was, but it's not necessarily the case. So, you know, when you're looking at this overarching theme, it's evaluating players' talent, teams' stats, no stats, it's really challenging, and it's not—it's not an easy thing to do.
1: And there's definitely not a perfect science. Well, it's interesting too because the concept of guys looking really good, it's having like a a solid like counting stat game, and then maybe not having as great of a game when you break the film down. Like I—I I think of arguably like one of the more interesting defensive pairs this team has rolled out this year, and that's the Myers sandheim pairing. And it's interesting to me, and it, and it was something that came up, I think, at the last home game with A.V. and the presser was, you know, what is it exactly that you see in those two guys that makes you still want to play them together? Because admittedly, in their first few games together, um, it, it was a little bit of a disaster. A, a disaster. Yeah. But, but there's something about both of those guys being big bodies and being dynamic offensive defensemen, as well as also being like decently reliable in their own end that makes a, a guy with the experience and the clap that Elaine Vigneault brings to the table that still makes him, it, it tantalizes him enough that he doesn't give up on that, which I think is interesting and maybe is one of the things that separates him from like a Dave Hacksaw or maybe a guy like Scott Gordon who's trying to coach for a job.
0: Yeah, so I think one thing that we've all gotten away from in the hockey community, it's either you're an offensive defenseman or you're a defensive defenseman. What about the guys who are good, solid two-way defensemen? guys who get it done on both sides. They're not a power play guy necessarily, but they move the puck very well. They skate, you know, they might chip in for five goals and 10 assists a year, 15 points, but they're good defensively. They play on the penalty kill, maybe the second power play. And so you look at these two guys and to me, they're both really good, you know, two-way defensemen. And uh, I think Travis Sanheim and Shane Gossesfear's injury situation and, and, His absence, his confidence, he plays a little bit different. He has a little more swag because I think he has a little more offensive freedom, which I think he's very comfortable with. With Myers, I think what has been the decision that has been made is we love his upside. And... He's too good to play in the American League. It's not going to do him any good, but he still makes a lot of mistakes, and we're just going to live with it. Yep. He's going to make him. We're going to keep putting him out there, and then we're going to show him video. And he'll get this whole year to do that. Now, next year, if he's still making those mistakes, that's when you start to get pushed down a depth chart. But the NHL is not a development league. Yep. The NHL is a win-now league. The American League is development. So you look at Myers and he's been granted a long leash this year sure. because there are times where he makes plays that you kind of scratch your head. You, you really do. And there are times where he makes plays and you're like, this guy could be a star. Yeah. So, you know, for him, I just think they've decided, okay, okay. We're going to show him film every uh, after every game. He's yep. going to have to watch his shifts and make sure he's learning because in-game, we're not going to bench him. We're not going to take his confidence because we love his upside. So, um, you know, the Flyers are going to have some decisions to make on the defensive end. I think with Hag and I think Braun, if you don't notice those two guys, they did their job. Yep. That is what they are paid to do. They're paid to be defensemen, and that's it. Get rid of the puck. Get it into the forwards' hands play good defensively, don't get beat, block shots, things that you don't necessarily recognize as a fan or as a media member, which is why I think, you know, I don't know how you take Robert Haig out of the lineup. I really don't. I don't he's deservedly in the lineup, and he's deserved to stay in the lineup, and I think he'll be
1: important through this next push. And and the point that you make about Myers being given this longer leash I think that and and the fact that he doesn't belong in the AHL level kind of resonates in in another sphere, which is fans a lot of times, they, they want to talk about Morgan Frost as being a guy who should be up at the NHL level. And to me, he doesn't look like a guy who's ready. Physically, I don't think he's there. Mentally, I think he's processing the game. Maybe There's almost like that disconnect, uh, almost like watching a, your your kid as they grow up. You're watching them play at a young level, then they hit middle school, and their body's adjusting, and then high school the same. And it's almost like their brain and, and the maturity of their their body and getting used to being taller, it, it all kind of changes. With me, when I watch Morgan Frost, I see a guy who I think is seeing a lot of the passes, he's seeing a lot of the plays developing, but the body's not making the same, it not working at the same speed. And so if he goes down to the AHL level and he's NHL ready, as a lot of people want to say that he is, then he should go down there and go on an absolute tear. What we saw earlier in the season is he got the call up, he went down, and and that was it. I mean, it, it leveled off. It was very underwhelming. And when he got the most recent call, it wasn't as if he was on a multi point streak like he was the first time he got called up this season. So are you seeing anything different? Because to me, like I, I don't I don't see it there. And Nolan Patrick, I don't think, is going to come back and make an impact this season. So they are probably gonna have to make a move for a bottom six forward unless Connor Bunneman keeps playing a, you know, a really solid game. I, I just don't see it doing any kind of relying on Morgan Frost at at the NHL level this season. You need depth. So Bunneman or not, you need 13, 14
0: capable forwards. And you'd like to have eight capable defensemen. Teams that win. I mean, St. Louis last year, defense. Bortuzzo played maybe four or five of the seven games. He became their seventh. Edmonton, who's now in Carolina, he's another defense. They were rotating seven, eight guys on defense. You need that type of depth. So yep. I think that Chuck is going to try. I don't know if he's going to be able to. The asking prices are insane. That's I the mean, problem. The market's seen, bad. The market is bad. Now, I do think the Coleman trade, because he only makes $1.8 million and because he has another year left on that one point eight, that made him more valuable. You get a guy who's got 21 goals on a bad team who only makes $1.8 million. A third, fourth liner for 1.8 is is a good – that's that's a good thing to yeah. have. That's a nice number. He plays with a little bit of grit. But I think the asking price is going to be insane for for guys. And, you know, I just don't foresee the Flyers being in a position to mortgage their future to try to get a guy like Chris Kreider or to even try to go get Zucker, who who got traded obviously
1: to Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh you know, who somehow seems to always manage to go out and make an acquisition. Well, Cause the they've only, and- they've
0: got, look, Pittsburgh's window is closing. Yeah. It just like Boston's window is closing. You, you know, your, your players are, are at the end. You know, I think Pittsburgh's window is bigger than Boston's, but, but the windows are closing for these teams who have guys who are in their 12th, 13th and 14th season in the NHL. So, Uh, I think your Morgan Frost evaluation is really solid. I think Morgan is incredibly skilled, maybe more skilled than Joel Farabee offensively, but he's not ready. His skill level is NHL skill level, but he's just his game isn't there yet. He's not strong enough on the puck. He doesn't play heavy enough, and so he's going to need the rest of this year. He may come up again. He may go down, and he'll be fine at the NHL level, but he's not going to be... star yet it's gonna take him a little bit of time based on his size based on he played in the ohl so he played against 16 17 and 18 year old kids for the last couple of years where joel farabee's playing college hockey he's playing against 21 22 23 year olds even 24 year olds yep farabee's also heavier on the puck and farabee has realized okay uh, what do I need to do to stay here for the Philadelphia Flyers? And he realized that I got it. He doesn't make high risk plays. It's not he will make high risk plays at one point of his career. Yeah. Next year you'll start to see it. You know, maybe the year after you'll start to see it. And and Frost just isn't there yet. His yep. development's not there now. His skills are insane. I mean, these two guys, the Flyers nailed these draft picks. Absolutely. The the, the scouts that were in charge of these guys and following these reports they nailed it because these two kids are going to be
1: cornerstones of the Flyers for a long time. Let's well, you know what? I wish we could. I wish we had more time. We, we are up against it now. Big thank you to Colby Cohen from NBC Sports Philadelphia. Have to have you back on the show at some point. Thanks for being on. We'll be back next Monday from 5 to 6 p.m. here on 610 ESPN Philadelphia with Snow the goalie.